everyone. Welcome back. It's time for another episode of Pep Talk, AASA's Education Policy Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Sasha Podelsky, the Advocacy Director for AASA and your host for today's podcast. If it's your first time tuning in, thank you. Here at Pep Talk, we cover all things that could be remotely labeled as education policy. And all our shows are available for download under the Pep Talk landing page on the AASA website. Looking ahead, if you have a show idea or a guest you think we should have on, please shoot me a note. Our latest episode, which you'll hear next, is with Heather, Heather Weaver, who is the senior staff attorney at the ACLU program on freedom of religion and belief. And I was so excited that Heather had time in her busy schedule to talk with us because she is organizing the amicus response to a case that will be heard by the Supreme Court this term that touches on the constitutionality of private school voucher programs. The case is called Espinoza versus Montana Department of Revenue, and this case will ask the Supreme Court to answer a question that some, think, some people think would have been unthinkable even to ask until recently, which is, can a state be forced to underwrite religious education with taxpayer dollars? And I enjoyed this conversation with Heather because fighting school vouchers is an issue that's near and dear to my heart. And those who know AASA well know that we have been a co-chair of the National Coalition for Public Education along with Americans United for the Separation of Church and State for a long time. It's a coalition of over 60 national education, civil rights, religious, secular, disability, and LGBT organizations that all join forces to oppose private school voucher programs at the federal level. And while our coalition is not specifically taking action in this case, AASA will be weighing in on an amicus brief before the Supreme Court with our good friends at the National School Boards Association, and many of our usual partners in crime will also be joining us. Um, and in addition, many of our coalition partners are also submitting unique amicus briefs given the importance of the, this case. But before I say anything more, let me tell you a little bit about Heather so we can launch into this Discussion about the significant case that could really change the landscape of voucher programs across the country. Heather is the senior staff attorney with the ACLU's program on freedom of religion and belief, where she litigates a wide array of religious liberty cases involving the separation of church and state and the free exercise of religion. Over the years, much of her work has focused on preventing government funding of religious and private education through school vouchers and similar programs. And in addition to her litigation duties, Heather advises ACLU affiliates across the country regarding religious freedom matters and educates the public about First Amendment rights through speaking appearances and blog posts featured on the ACLU website. And prior to joining the ACLU, Heather was an attorney with Americans United for Separation of Church and State, and she received her law degree from the University of California, Berkeley. And you can follow her on Twitter using her username, Heather Weaver, DC. So Heather, thank you so much again for joining us on the PEP podcast. Hi, Sasha. Thank you uh, so much for having me. I'm really pleased to be here and talk about this case and raise awareness of its implications for uh, public education and religious liberty. So let's start with how we got here. Talk to us about the origins of this case and how we wound up having the Supreme Court even considering it before that this year. Sure. Um, I'll, let me give you a little bit of background on the case. As you said, it's called Espinoza v. De Montana Department of Revenue, and it's a bit surprising that the Supreme Court agreed to hear it. I'll tell you why, uh, but it involves just giving some background first. In 2015, the Montana legislature enacted a tax credit program that would have diverted millions in tax dollars to private schools, including religious schools. 
The plan allowed taxpayers to receive a dollar-for-dollar tax credits up to $150 for donations to what are called student scholarship organizations, or for short, SSOs. In other words, rather than paying your taxes that you owe the state, a person could donate them up to $150 to an SSO, and then the SSO would use the money um, to pay for uh, tuition for students to attend private schools that were um, designated as, quote, qualified education providers under the statute. So the statute allows up to $3 million alone in the first year to be diverted to the program, and then that total amount would be increased each year, assuming that the cap was met. That is pretty unprecedented for Montana because in all of Montana law, Montana had never allowed dollar-for-dollar tax credit scheme, nor any sort of, they haven't had really any sort of voucher program. But we have seen tax schemes like this in other states. They're sometimes referred to as backdoor school vouchers. They've been pushed by school choice advocates, and they have the same purpose and end goal as vouchers. So when we're talking about vouchers and we're saying tax credit programs, we're saying education savings accounts, these all have the same um, purpose and function. They're just structured Um, a little bit differently in terms of how the money is allocated and how it gets to the schools to pay for um, private education and religious education. But when we talk about tax credit schemes, vouchers, and education savings accounts, um, we're, we're talking about the same thing, basically. Now, many state constitutions have what we call no aid provisions that prohibit public funds from being used either directly or indirectly to support religious education. These are constitutional provisions that were enacted to provide heightened protections for the separation of church and state, but also to protect the integrity and funding sources of public schools by ensuring that public funds go to support public schools, which, as we know, serve all students. Montana has a no-A clause um, or no-A provision. It's in Article 10, Section 6 of the Montana Constitution. So when it came time for the Montana Department of Revenue to implement the tax credit program, they took a look at the state constitution and realized that in order to comply with it, the scholarships could not be used to pay for religious education and training um, that would be provided by private religious schools. So um, in order to comply with the state constitution, they enacted what was called Rule 1. And that prevented, that basically prevented scholarships from being used to pay for private religious education. Now, several parents of children who attend religious schools objected to that, and they filed suit in state court to challenge Rule One. Ultimately, after some um, legal proceedings at lower at the lower state court, the Montana Supreme Court um, got a hold of the issue and ruled that the tax credit credit program violated the no aid provision for several reasons. The court said, first of all, the legislature, not SSOs, provide the funding, so it's public funds, essentially. Um, the scholarships were an indirect payment to religious schools under the no-aid provision. Now, remember, the no-aid clauses pro- prohibit both direct and indirect funding of religious education. And so the state said, even though this isn't like directly going to the schools, it's going to students, and then, then they decide which school it goes to. The Montana Supreme Court said, nevertheless, it's an indirect aid, and that is barred by the state constitution. And then finally, this, you know, the Montana Supreme Court concluded that overall the program as a whole aided religious education because the overwhelming majority of schools uh, that would constitute 
um, quote-unquote qualified education providers under the statute were religiously affiliated. What Tennessee Supreme Court um, did in response to that problem was it invalidated the entire tax credit program. So scholarships are prohibited through the program for any private school, whether or not religious. And that's why I said at the beginning that it's a little surprising that the court took this case because the petitioner sought review from the U.S. Supreme Court. There was no discrimination against religious schools or religious education at this point. The entire tax credit program had been struck down, um, so neither private, um, non-religious um, or religious schools were going to receive funding. Nevertheless, the, the plaintiffs or, uh, or the petitioners, as we call them at the Supreme Court, asked the court to review the case. They argued that the Montana Supreme Court's decision to invalidate, invalidate the whole program because it aided religious schools was itself a violation of the Free Exercise Clause, the Establishment Clause, and the Equal Protection Clause of the U.S. Constitution. And surprisingly, the court took the case, even though, again, there was no actual difference in funding for private religious and non-religious education at this point. So that's how we got to where we are today. Wow, that's really interesting. So not <laughs> an expected outcome by any means. Um, but the court took the case. Correct. Um, it's an uh, it's an unusual procedural posture for for this case. And and is that is that telling already in terms of how things may play out in your mind? Just jumping the gun here a little bit. <laughs> well, you know, I, I I unfortunately I have to say I think it is. Um, you know, the Supreme Court's most re- recent uh, decision on funding of religion was in a case called Trinity Lutheran Church v. Comer, and in that case it showed that many on the court are eager to move toward an interpretation of the law that allows for more funding of religious entities. Now, in that case, the court ruled that Missouri couldn't rely on its no-aid provision to disallow funding for a church as part of a program that paid for the resurfacing of playgrounds. The court assumed that the use there was non-religious and stopped short of saying that religious uses of funding are okay in such programs, but in that decision, it was clear that there are several justices who clearly support that as an end goal, and um, it's, it's likely that they see this case as a way to advance the ball towards that goal. Got it. Got it. So, so why is this case so important, I guess, and other than, you know, for church-state separation advocates who clearly see this as a, as a way of, of crumbling that wall? I think that there's a couple of reasons that it's important. As you said, it's it's super important for people who actually care about the separation of church and state, and I'll explain why that is. And then the implication, the legal implications, also have a huge bearing on the practical um, effect that this this case could have in terms of um, uh, the availability of voucher programs and um, funding for um, public education. So, first, legally speaking, this case could mark the first time that the Supreme Court has ever held that states are required to fund religious education as part of voucher scholarship and similar programs. I don't want to get too, I don't want to get too legalistic here, but previously in 2002, the Supreme Court held in a case called Selman v. Simmons-Harris that voucher programs that include religious schools are generally okay under the Establishment Clause because they're providing indirect aid. The court there was focused on the fact that the money goes to students and parents who then decide which school it goes to, not the government. So in that case, the court said, okay, these programs are are permissible under the Establishment Clause. But then in a subsequent case in 2004 in Locke v. Davey, the Supreme Court said that, yes, those that's permissible to indirectly fund religious education and training, but it's not required that states do so. 
Um, so in that case, the state of Washington had restricted its higher education scholarship funds from being used to pursue a, de a degree in theology, which the court said was an essentially religious endeavor. And the court said, you know, again, it's fine. It's okay under the federal establishment clause for states to uh, fund vouchers, even if the funding goes to religious schools, but they're not required to do that. The court said there's a play in the joints between the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause. Religious schools are, in, uh, are not entitled to um, funding for religious education, even if a state does decide to offer funding for private education, for private non-religious education, excuse me. So that was an important decision that ensured that states with no aid clauses like Montana, like the state of Washington, could continue to enforce their state constitutions by saying, by imposing regulations as part of any sort of funding program that they might offer that ensure that the that public funds are not going to support religious education. In this case, in, in Espinosa v. Um, Montana Department of Revenue, the court could effectively overrule or severely limit that precedent, even though we all know that elementary and secondary religious education, um, which is at issue in the Montana case, is also an essentially religious endeavor. Now, in my work on these issues over, over the years, I've looked at the policies and practices of countless elementary and secondary religious schools, and the vast majority of them integrate religious doctrine throughout the curriculum and programming. They typically discriminate in employment and in admissions based on religion, disability, and other protected characteristics. And that that's their right, of course. But it's highly problematic when the state funds that, and until now, many have not done so because it's prohibited by their state constitutions. The court's ruling here could effectively gut those protections. So it would be a huge change in court precedent. Um, that's one of the reasons that this is important for us, for people who care about um, church-state state separation. Related to that is that although we're dealing with an indirect funding scheme here, it's, which is distinct from direct funding, as a legal matter, it would be another step down the road toward allowing even direct government funding to put to religious uses. So imagine that the Trinity Lutheran case I mentioned earlier wasn't about playground resurfacing, but it was about, I don't know, like purchasing decor for school walls. If school choice advocates and those who support um, government funding of religion have their way, the government funds could be used to purchase and install crosses or portraits of Jesus, or in the case of a Muslim school, the Star and Crescent, or the Star of David for a Jewish school. So if you care about separation of church and state, this case is very important because it could mark a turning point in the jurisprudence that leads down that road. Hmm. Um, beyond that, and I, this is the part I'm sure that your listeners care way more about, but, but beyond that, it's important because of what that would mean as a practical matter for students in public education. So by eliminating or at least weakening a key hurdle to the enactment of voucher like programs, um, the state constitutional no way provisions, this case could open the door to a flood of those programs, um, which we know harm public schools. We know that they don't improve education for students, and we know that they exclude many students from participating. So that's a practical um, effect of what all of this change in jurisprudence would mean for those who are concerned about uh, protecting the integrity of public education and ensuring that students are not discriminated against through the use of public funds. Right, right. So let's unpack this a little bit more because I, I, I'm this is this is what I'm struggling to understand. So we already have lots of religious schools that participate in voucher programs. Are there? I, I don't think there are any states that say if you're a religious school you can't participate in our voucher program. Are there? So there are some states where voucher programs were enacted, 
and then they were challenged, you know, in state court based on state constitution, no aid provisions, okay? Mm -hmm. um, I'm thinking of Indiana, for example. So Indiana has a no aid provision. The state courts there interpreted that provision to be equivalent to the, to the federal constitutional provisions. So they said, yes, we have this, but it doesn't provide any more tech protection than the state than the federal constitution does. So it's fine if the funding here goes to religious schools. And so religious schools participate in those types of, in, in those instances where the state has, where there's a no way provision and the state has said, go ahead and, you know, religious, um, it, it doesn't prohibit religious schools from participating. Um, other states have had enacted programs and the state court has said, yeah, religious schools can't be funded through these programs because of the no way provision. They've interpreted it in a much more a much stricter way and to provide heightened protections for separation of church and state. Then there are other states still that don't have a no aid provision, but that have um, other state uh, protections through state statutes or regulations that recognize the longstanding state interest in in not funding religious education and that also are intended to protect funding for public education. And so they don't allow religious schools to participate in voucher programs. Um, for example, in Maine, Maine does not have a no aid provision, but um, state law disallows funding of um, religious education. And so in those situations, um, situations like that, religious schools are not um, allowed to participate. But you're right that there are a number of states that do have voucher programs that religious schools participate in. And that's likely because they, um, like I said, they either don't have a no aid provision or they, their no aid provision has been interpreted to permit funding for religious education. Got it. Okay. Got it. So, is that is that too confusing or? No, I know. I, I think I, I think I follow that, but I, yeah. I guess I'm just trying to figure out what a victory on um, on the side of of voucher proponents really would mean in public for public education generally. Right. In right. states have these no aid clauses. Well, so as I mentioned. Uh, um, you know, this case could effectively invalidate or gut the, the no aid clauses um, and the protections that they offer, which would make it much easier for voucher proponents to propose these to propose voucher programs in those states. Moreover, to the extent that some states may already have voucher programs that are limited to non-religious private education, this case could open the door to expanding those um, on an unprecedented basis. Because basically, if the, depending on how, on how the court rules, if the court rules that states are required to fund religious education when it has, whenever it has these programs, then ex existing programs that are currently limited to um, non-religious schools would have to, would potentially have to, again, depending on the nature of the Supreme Court's decision, could potentially have to open up their funding to religious schools. So it would, it would mark a huge expansion of um, some of the existing voucher programs. And then again, it would make it much easier for voucher programs to be enacted in states that have previously strongly enforced their no aid provisions. So do you think like a state that has a strong Catholic presence, for example, like New York, New Jersey, you know, those, those kinds of places, like, you know, they, if this goes the, the way of, of voucher proponents, it doesn't go our way, uh, there would be this huge push by those kinds of religious organizations to go for a voucher program because suddenly they're eligible for these dollars. And, you know, that now it makes a lot of sense to have these, these funds you know, being used for private school education, and, and, and they're going to be much more aggressive in terms of their advocacy and trying to convince legislators to, to create these voucher programs? Is that something that you anticipate? Oh, yes. I think that they're going to be emboldened to do that um, for sure. I think it's important to remember that in most states, the majority of 
private schools are religious. Um, and so that's where the religious issue comes in as well. Um, and, and, and they're definitely, you know, school choice advocates and um, certainly um, religious educators and religious schools are, are definitely going to come in and try to um, obtain money through the, uh, for tuition through these programs. Uh, there, there's no doubt about that. And again, as we know, the larger these programs get, or the more um, the more programs that there are, the more public education is undermined because they are diverting, you know, desperately needed resources away from um, a system that serves all students to a system that serves a select few, and that actively discriminates against students on various grounds. So, um, right. I think that's a problem not only from a religious liberty perspective but it's also a problem just from a perspective of what are the goals of public education and where should our public funds go? Should they go to support a system that is not able to serve and that will not serve all students? Um, in Montana, for example, just getting back to the to this case, the tax credit program did go into effect during the court challenge and once SSO was formed, it supported 13 schools. 12 were religious. The 13th was an elementary school for children with dis, um, learning disabilities. So overall, um, during the time that the program has been in, in, um, in place, more than 94% of program scholarships awarded under the SSO supported religious schools. Now, keep in mind that many of these schools discriminate in admission based on faith, and if you're not, if the student isn't the right faith or students that have a disability or students because they're LGBT, there are various grounds that they discriminate on. So students, um, even if they wanted to take advantage of the SSO funding, may not be able to do that. In uh, Montana, there are only three counties total that have secular, non-tribal private schools that teach all grade levels. So that means that at some point, the kids in those counties unless they want to attend religious schools and unless they are eligible, they don't have any of the disqualifying factors, they aren't the wrong faith, they don't have a you know, disability, um, they're not LGBT, unless they meet all those requirements, um, they're not gonna be able to benefit from this tax credit program. And right. they're going to be um, left in the public schools, which are now gonna be even further um, under-resourced. And um, it's, it's an issue of um, education equity, uh, really, right. yep. when you think yep. about it yep. that way. You are preaching to the choir, yeah. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Um, right. We hear you loud and clear. Um, so just just to be clear, this this is something that could impact. This decision could could also impact states that do not have no aid clauses or provisions. Right. Is that right? Right. So the example I had given was Maine. You know, Maine does not have a no aid provision, but it has had longstanding statutory protections that recognize the state's interest in not funding religious education through vouchers and through other means. Mm -hmm. So this case could have implications for any state that has statutory or regulatory protections based on the same concerns that animate the no aid clauses, right? It could, this case, depending on how the court rules, could require the states to open up those programs um, that exist to religious education. In right. addition, we, we got at this earlier, but if voucher programs are being enacted across the country after this, um, if more voucher programs are being act enacted across the country, and to be clear, depending on how the court rules here, we could see a flood of voucher programs being enacted. Um, that's going to no doubt embolden and inspire voucher activists in every state to push for new or expanded programs. Um, so that's another way that it's going to affect states that don't have um, no aid provisions. Um, you know, the bottom line is going is that there will be more money that will be diverted um, from public public 
education to private education, and with that will come all the same harms we've seen from voucher programs, but on you know an increase in intensity and on an increase in intensified and more systemic level than we've ever seen before. Yeah. Can I ask another question that is a little, like, not talking about vouchers, but, you know, if there's, say, a competitive grant program that the state is running mm -hmm. for literacy, for example, right now it's mm -hmm. only, only public schools that can apply. Um, would this suddenly say, well, because we don't, because of the Supreme Court ruling now, we have to open this grant program up to private schools too, otherwise we're discriminating? Um, it could it could be beyond vouchers? Like, could, could now private schools be eligible for all kinds of dollars in some states that they're not eligible for because it's always been they've always been not uh, private religious schools, I should say. Suddenly, you know, the doors open to them not just to pull down resources through a voucher program, but to pull down all kinds of state funding that they're not currently getting. Uh, yes, it could. I mean, we saw that in the Trinity Lutheran case. So there, there was a state program that paid for re the resurfacing of playgrounds for schools. And this Missouri Constitution has a no aid clause, and so um, when the program was being implemented, you know, religious schools were not uh, eligible to receive funding, or at least one religious school was, in this case, one religious school was denied funding, I should say, um, and that school sued. Uh, and the Supreme Court said, this is a neutral program, it's being used for a non-religious use, purportedly, the resurfacing of playgrounds. And so you can't discriminate against religious schools by denying them that aid. Now, in that case, the court stopped short of saying that you had to, that states would have to provide funding if the aid would be used for religious purposes. So in your example, the literacy program, there's, you know, I think there's an even clearer argument um, with that, that this would if, if, a, if a religious school received money for a literacy program, and the literacy program is incorporating um, religious doctrine or religious texts and things of that nature, there's an argument that that money is going to be used for religious purposes. And so since it's going, actually, in this case, in your example, it would be going to, to, to the religious school directly, um, there's an argument that um, they shouldn't be allowed to receive that money. And that's currently the state of the law, right? If, mm -hmm. if the current state of the law under Trinity Lutheran is that religious schools can't be excluded from programs, um, from general funding programs um, that the state authorizes if the funding is for non-religious uses, okay? And that's whether, and that would be whether it's, you know, direct or indirect funding. The court, again, didn't go so far as to say that, you know, that programs where funds would be diverted to religious uses had to allow um, funding, but this could this case could be the next step towards that, for sure. Got it. Got um, it. And, you know, it just sort of depends how the court. It's going to depend on how the court would if if the court were to rule in favor of the petitioners. It would depend on how the court you know frames the exactly how it frames the decision, but it could open the door to other types of funding being made available to religious schools. And again, what that does is, is you're expanding the, the amount of funding that is going to private education, um, whether religious or non-religious, and thereby that's money that is not going to public education, right? Right, right. Yeah, and I, and I feel like that you've touched on some of the arguments, and I'm sure that's one of them, that, that groups are going to be making, how, this, how voucher programs undermine public schools, you know, how mm -hmm. they discriminate, how they, you know, um, are not an accountable way of spending dollars, how mm -hmm. they, you know, don't, don't, don't ensure choice for all kids, et cetera. 
Um, so I, I don't want to get too into that because I think our folks know those talking points because they have to make them all the time when states yeah. debate this legislation or when we're talking about federal programs too here. Um, so just quickly, when is the case going to be argued and when do you think we'll get a decision? I just um, um, jumped onto the Supreme Court's docket before we chatted today because I wanted to see if an argument date had been set, um, but it hasn't been set yet. So what I can tell you is that the state of Montana's brief is due on November 7th, and then one week light later, um, amicus briefs, or what are sometimes called front of the court briefs, will be filed. You mentioned that your um, organization is, and others are, are filing them. There's going to be there will be a number of them filed, including the ACLU will file one as well. And I anticipate, based upon that timeline, that oral argument will probably be in the early winter, January or February. And I anticipate that we'll get a decision. Um, I think it will be towards the end of the term. Um, it'll, I think it'll be sometime in June. And I think, um, well, there are a lot of um, high-profile cases that are going to be heard at the Supreme Court this term. But given that this is also a pretty controversial one, I think it will be the decision will be held and um, come down ultimately towards the very end of the term. Great, great. Well, then I guess we'll have to wait until then, and then we'll have you on again. And yeah, we'll have to. The court did. <laughs> Well, I'll, either I'll be, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see if I'm cheering or crying. I don't know. Likewise, yeah. <laughs> likewise. Um, well, thank you so much for your time today. It was uh, it was wonderful to, to learn so much from you about this case and, and the importance of it and why public education advocates and, and superintendents need to be so aware of what's going on uh, with the docket this, this year. If there's anything else you want to say uh, in terms of things that we should be on the lookout for, uh, you know, is, this is your chance. Otherwise, we can, we can end things. It's up to you. Yeah, you know, there's one point I did want to make, which is just, and I think it's helpful because maybe your your audience may hear this from people on the other side, which is, this is not about hostility to religion. There are really good reasons for, um, some of which I've discussed, um, for not, for in, for restricting um, funding for religious education. It's, you know, a cornerstone of the First Amendment. It's a foundational concern that um, the framers of the Constitution even had. And even though the Supreme Court has upheld um, the uh, school vouchers that um, go to um, religious education, that doesn't mean that providing additional protection on top of that at the state level is somehow hostile to religion. It's ultimately about protecting the individual conscience of the taxpayers, and it's ultimately about protect, ultimately about protecting religion itself too. Right now, religious um, educators and religious schools have a lot of autonomy and um, freedom, you know, as they should. But once you start involving them in government funding schemes, um, then rightfully so, the government should have a say in what they do with that with that money. Um, if they're using that money to discriminate, if they're using that money um, to teach things that don't meet, you know, the public school's curricular standards. So uh, I just, you know, I think that people on the other side tend to characterize um, these provisions and restrictions as being hostile to religion. And in, and in fact, it's just the opposite. Yeah, great point. Great, great point. Well, thank you again, Heather, for, for your time today. Really appreciate it. We know how busy you are and how busy ACLU is these days. So sure. thank you so much. Uh, thank you for joining us as well. All the superintendents who are tuning in appreciate it. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks with another episode of the PEP podcast.